Good day and once again, welcome back to the podcast. As our adventure is getting closer to the end, today is Wednesday, 5th of February, 1947. Bet has now left China and is on what seems to be an endless tour of South Pacific ports as she wends her way home on the good ship Rainella. She's arrived in port in the township of Ley in Papua New Guinea and has found the opportunity to catch up with a school friend of hers, Jeanette Ley, and her husband Mick. But before we hear from Bet, let's hear more from the closing chapters of the story of Unra. Chapter 28 Aftermath At the Fifth Council session in Geneva in August 1946, the United States and the United Kingdom, the two largest supplying nations, took the position that it was time to bring the activities of UNRWA to a close. The gist of their reasoning? Most liberated countries had functioning governments. They could procure and ship supplies better than an international organisation. Countries short of foreign exchange could turn to the International Bank and Monetary Fund. To the extent that assistance was not supplied by the bank and the fund, the proper solution was for a needy country to apply, on an individual basis, to another country which was able and prepared to help. Thus, future relief efforts were placed on bilateral rather than international basis. Just as it took some time to wind up for action as vast an organisation as UNRWA, it likewise took some time to run it down. UNRWA's health division went out of business on January 1, 1947, its displaced person division six months later. The European missions closed their doors in June 1947 and its Far Eastern missions at the end of that year. As UNRWA bowed out, Other international organisations picked up the important phases of its work, all with the aid of substantial bequests from UNRWA residual funds and some of UNRWA's trained personnel. The Interim Commission of the World Health Organisation took over certain aspects of the UNRWA health programme, including advising and assisting in the control of malaria, tuberculosis and other diseases, and training health personnel. UNRWA financial assistance up to $3 million. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization assumed the direction of a number of technical and advisory services initiated by UNRWA to increase food production. UNRWA aid, $1,350,000. The Preparatory Commission of the International Refugee Organization assumed responsibility for all UNRWA displaced persons activities. To keep the camps going until PCIRO funds were available, UNRWA loaned the fledging agency $2 million and transferred $1 million from its residual assets. The International Children's Emergency Fund, which was an outgrowth of an UNRWA Council resolution, has so far received a total of $11,100,000 from UNRWA's unspent funds. At its peak, UNRWA was providing an extra meal a day for 10 million children. By the end of 1947, ISEF announced it was reaching about 3.5 million European children a day and planned aid to at least 700,000 Chinese children. Late in 1947, the Chinese government established a board of trustees 
including foreign as well as Chinese national as members, to carry forward millions of dollars worth of long-range rehabilitation projects in China after UNRWA's departure. These projects, which are expected to be of vital significance to China's economy in the years ahead, include rehabilitation of its fishing industry, setting up plans for the production of pharmaceutical supplies, its Yellow River project, and numerous activities intended to modernise Chinese agriculture. The plan calls for the active direction of the projects by a newly created Chinese Rehabilitation Commission. The Board of Trustees, which would hold in trust the long-term equipment, the funds resulting from the sale of UNRWA goods in China, and $5 million transferred to the Board by UNRWA, will serve in an advisory capacity to the Rehabilitation Commission, but will exercise financial control of all UNRWA residual assets allocated for the support of the projects. It is contemplated that the projects will be turned over to private industry after they get a good start. Chapter 29. Thank you, UNRWA. This, then, is the story of the life and times of UNRWA, the first great international relief and rehabilitation organisation. It was in existence for slightly over four years, two of them in full action. In the supplying countries, UNRWA will soon be little more than a huge set of books and pages and pages and pages of technical reports and grey statistics. But UNRWA is far more than a tall column of figures in the lands which received its aid. A New York Times correspondent returned from a trip across Europe in the long, cold, hard winter of 1946-47, the longest and coldest and hardest winter of a century, wrote, To the occupied countries, UNRWA became a holy word, and often meant the difference between life and death. There aren't many ways in which people and countries can shout gratitude across an ocean. The receiving governments have, of course, sent their official thanks to UNRWA. Thousands of individuals have written letters to its missions, or thanked its staff members in person, or with some tiny token gift. In Poland, a monument to UNRWA has been unveiled. Czechoslovakia has named a college in its memory. Children and horses and cows, too, are called UNRWA. There have been UNRWA parades and UNRWA exhibits. In the interior of China, even after men and women in uniforms with red UNRWA flashes on their sleeves had been familiar sights for months, they could not appear on the streets to ride out in an UNRWA jeep without having the peasants line up alongside the road to cheer. But one of the most eloquent expressions of what UNRWA meant to the people is contained in this brief communication to the editor of a Czechoslovakian paper, intended only for the eyes of other townsmen. The whole town is affected with a fever. We are studying hard the clippings of the paper which list the UNRWA goods on ration points. Do you feel the blood running to your head? We can get crackers and sardines and dried evaporated milk and cheddar cheese and meat with vegetables and so on and so on. The grocer is a very tired man indeed. From morning until night, he has chattering housewives around him, one waiting to see what the other is going to take, all weighing the value of one thing against another. We all become children seeing these UNRWA parcels in solid and nice wrappings. They mean peace. A peace we are enjoying in small doses, but even those doses are exciting to us. We are children, 
barefooted and out at the elbows, and suddenly we see before us a rich display. We are standing around with a finger in our mouth, and we are looking at it in wonder and in gratitude. The 48 member governments of UNRWA Australia, Belgium, Bolivia, Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, Canada, Chile, China, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Egypt, El Salvador, Ethiopia, France, Greece, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Iceland, India, Iran, Iraq, Liberia, Luxembourg, Mexico, Netherlands, New Zealand, Nicaragua, Norway, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Philippine Commonwealth, Poland, Turkey, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, Union of South Africa, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, United Kingdom, United States of America, Uruguay, Venezuela, Yugoslavia. The story of UNRWA was issued by the Office of Public Information, United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, 1344 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., February 15, 1948. But now, let's hear from Bet on her idyllic, endless South Pacific cruise. MV Ranella, Lay, Papua New Guinea, Wednesday the 5th of February 1947. Dear family, I was completely surprised to find that the mailbag had something for me. No doubt about the family motto, never miss an opportunity. Had letters from you, Mother, and from you, Dad, and from Dosh and Phil and Cecil. It certainly was a thrill. It is our fourth day here in Leigh, and thanks to Jeanette and Mick, our days are passing very quickly. On the day of our arrival, Sunday, after reading and rereading my letters, I went ashore with Hank and about six others to explore. It was pretty hot walking, but before long we had hailed a truck and the young digger driver took control of our activities for the afternoon. He showed us the sights of Lei, including the Japanese wrecks, the war cemeteries, the local hotel, Hotel Cecil, and trading stores. That's about all there is. In the meantime, I had inquired about the Lays who were out at Nadzab for the day. Sure enough, they duly arrived on board that night and seemed just as pleased to see me as I was to see them. Much chatter, as you can imagine. Mr Best is staying with Jeanette, who is moving to her new home in the hills at Zenab, about 40 miles away, as soon as the Markham floodwaters subside. The road will be out for a few days yet. Had the way been clear, they planned to move on Monday. I, of course, am glad they didn't. Jeanette has taken me with her on the social rounds and Hank and I have had a number of meals at her own home. She seems to enjoy thoroughly the life here 
and her two boys look particularly healthy specimens. They are nice children. I like Mick very much too. The loading of cargo is the slowest I have seen yet. It now appears that we shall continue loading until Friday afternoon. We have to be away from the wharf on Saturday when the Montoro comes back. Whether we have finished our loading or not, the skipper will not return here for more cargo. We shall go to Finchhaven then, chiefly for water but also for cargo, and I have no idea how long we'll be there. Personally, I think it will only be a few days. We still don't know whether the destination will be Sydney or Melbourne. I do hope it's Sydney. We are not taking any more passengers on board, so it may work out that I will have a cabin to myself for the rest of the trip. That will be an unexpected and unusual privilege. I'll believe it if and when it happens. It's pretty hot here, of course, but not unpleasant. I think that Nan Chang will probably remain my standard and record for hot weather. I come out in a sweat at the thought of it. Bill, the purser, is collecting the mail, so I may as well finish off now and get this into the immediately available mailbag. I'm more and more restless about getting on the final home run. Oodles of love to you all and thank you for your letters. Bet. P.S. Recustoms. When I arrive, my problems will be comparatively simple, though I'm expecting to have to pay a considerable sum into the coffers. The camphor wood box, and unfortunately I could only get the one, will be closely examined anyway, and probably retained for a while for fumigation. In it, I have packed everything that may be dutiable. Perhaps it sounds like handing it to them on a platter, but I decided it was the wisest thing. Things which could be said to be my personal effects are in my other luggage, and I have tons of evidence as to the loss of my clothes on the outward journey. I have typed a list of the contents of the camphor box and will try to work out values so there will be no hitch. May have to empty the box for fumigation, but that could be done after my arrival, I should think. But it will all be worked out in due course. Cheerio. Billy's almost on the way. Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn. And the featured tune from 1947. How Soon Will I Be Seeing You? Performed by Jack Owens. Featuring Eddie Ballantyne and his orchestra.
star eyes gleaming Don't mind me if I'm dreaming Tell me, darling, now how soon How soon And when will you be saying words I want to hear? Don't mind me if I 